There's an uneasiness growing within today's parents. Questions arise around what our kids are being taught, exposed to, and influenced by. Thankfully, a fully engaged, well-informed parent is a powerful thing. And that's why I support Answers in Genesis, and I would recommend you do as well, because it's important to remember that the battle for our kids' minds isn't one in the courts or the classrooms. It's one from the safety and comfort of our own home. So be the difference our kids need and visit www.answers.gift today. The church isn't resilient. It's anti-fragile. This is episode 106 of Church and Maine. Church in Maine, the podcast that is at the intersection of faith and modern life. This is a podcast where we focus on uh, religion and public affairs. And I'm Dennis Sanders, your host. Hope things are going well and that you are enjoying the summer. Hard to believe that July is almost halfway through. Well, back in mid-January, my husband Daniel got COVID, and I'm pretty sure that I did too around the same time. I was having a lot of the same symptoms, and they were not sympathy symptoms, I can tell you that, Um, even though I was testing negative. um, In both cases, the illness was mild. We have both been vaccinated. Um, But it was interesting to think about the fact that um, inside of our bodies, uh, you know, our body was busy fighting off the infection, uh, producing more antibodies, that would allow the body to grow stronger um, should it encounter the virus again. And this is kind of one way to um, describe what it means to be anti-fragile. Now, anti-fragile is a term that was coined by a British writer, Nicholas Taleb. And what that means is, is that uh, being anti-fragile means being subjected to some type of a stress over and over again. And that stress, being subjected to that, really allows the body to become stronger. Um, It's just as if someone is lifting weights, and the more that they lift weights, the more that they kind of put on more weight um, to to their um, weights and add pounds, they become stronger. Well, the church can also be um, an anti-fragile group of people or institution as well, at least so says uh, Pastor Drew McIntyre. He writes uh, about this in the latest edition of Firebrand magazine. And here I wanted to lift a quote from his article, and this is what he says about being anti-fragile. Similarly, the church across time and space has grown, have often grown in the face of challenge. In the early centuries of Christianity, Tertullian famously observed the blood of martyrs as the seed of the faith. Later, the monastic movement arose to maintain a radical witness when martyrdom became unlikely. The relative comfort of imperially sponsored Christianity, a different sort of challenge, became the womb for new institutions of strict fidelity. Likewise, councils and creeds took shape when the body of Christ was met with challenges to the faith once and for all delivered from groups like Arians, Martianites, and Donatists. In the face of false teaching, the church clarified and strengthened its doctrine. The church is anti-fragile. So in this episode, Drew um, joins us again, I believe this is actually number three, uh, third time on the podcast, to talk about what it means for a congregation to be anti-fragile. And anti-fragile is actually something that congregations need to be, especially in challenging times. Um, It is a challenging time uh, for Methodist congregations, especially um, um, Drew's, which is Drew's uh, denomination. Uh, The United Methodist Church right now is in the midst of a schism. I think this is also an important episode, regardless of of, um, what denomination or tradition you are from, we are living in very challenging times, especially post-COVID, 
um, how churches try to regain footing after, in some cases, um, a year away from uh, public worship. Drew is currently the a pastor, currently the pastor at Grace United Methodist Church in Greensboro, North Carolina. Um, I've had him on before to talk about various other issues. I'm hoping to have him on sometime soon to talk about pop culture and theology. Um, we'll still need to make that date sometime soon. But for now, let's learn about what it means to be an anti-fragile church. Welcome back. I think this is uh, number three, uh, third time having you on, Drew. Yeah, third third tries a charm. Hopefully, I'll get this one right. <laughs> I think the first two we're doing were pretty good, so <laughs> don't have to worry about that. No, it's been uh, it's been fun every time. Thanks for for having me back. Always fun to talk to you, Dennis. So, this um, article has a few things that um, kind of left out at me. Um, especially the first um, uh, kind of concept of resilience. And, but then you brought up something I kind of know about. I have not read the book uh, that you referenced, but I, I am aware of it. So I guess maybe the first thing to ask is, what is the difference between resilient and anti-fragile? Yeah, um, this was a concept that kind of blew my mind too. Um, pretty simply, Okay, resilience is what we think of as things that are that are tough, right? A piece of steel is resilient. Uh, you can drop it on the, you know, drop it from a skyscraper and it won't break, right? Mm-hmm. It's resilient. Uh, a diamond is resilient. Um, lots of things like that are resilient. Um, anti-fragile is different because whereas something that's resilient can withstand a lot of force, something that is anti-fragile actually becomes stronger when faced with some kind of challenge or force or trauma or injury or whatever it is. Um, Nicholas Taleb, who wrote the, um, the primary book, um, refers to a lot of systems in particular as being anti-fragile, uh, economic systems, political systems. He uses a, what I said in the article, he uses the example of, of weightlifting. Mm-hmm. Um, I think he got into powerlifting and and weightlifting is a great example, right? Because you expose your body to incremental, incrementally heavier loads, uh, different exercises. And it's not just that your body withstands it, your body actually grows stronger from that exercise. So in some ways your, your muscular, musculoskeletal system <laughs> is anti-fragile. Um, okay. And Taleb argues uh, that um, systems like economic systems, I argue in the piece, like the church, that they're anti-fragile systems that actually need that challenge, that stress, um, those um, uh, rough rough patches to become stronger. The, the prime example being something like a um, uh, your immune system, right? But your immune system, we know now, you need to um, but up against germs and, and things when you're, when you're young to build up your immune system. So the, again, the immune system needs that to actually become its strongest. And so that's, that's the argument in a nutshell for resilience versus anti-fragile. And when I first read this, um, I thought it was a brilliant concept. I'd not heard anyone apply it to the church. Mm-hmm. And so that's what I really want to do in this piece is apply that concept, um, hopefully in a fruitful way to the church. So we hear actually a lot about churches being resilient. Mm-hmm. We have not, and, and obviously why you wrote, wanted to write this about churches being um, anti-fragile. So kind of explain what, what would a church look like that is an anti-fragile church versus a resilient church? That's a good question. And, you know, I'm, I'm largely in this piece looking at kind of a 10,000 foot view right, denominations, systems, the the small C church as a whole. I don't know how well it would apply 
to a local congregation, although I think it still could, but I was mostly thinking of kind of systems. Um, we do hear a lot about churches being resilient, churches lasting, but I think if you look over the course of, of history, I make this case in the piece, historically the church has gotten, has gotten both gotten stronger in times of stress and times of persecution and grown weaker in times of comfort. Um, I think we see that ebb and flow in, in sort of the history of, of the church. We certainly see it in uh, the West right now. We see it all over the developing world where the church is exploding um, despite all sorts of economic and political crises and wars. And, you know, the example of the Nigerian churches being bombed uh, that he used in, in that piece, but, but going all the way back to Tertullian saying the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. This is not a new phenomenon. Um, the early church grew not because it had some kind of state sponsorship and comfortable life, but in spite of being a small despised movement without state sanction or authority. And, you know, you, where would you see, um, being that you're United Methodist, what is, where is United Methodist right now in all of this? Is it resilient, anti-fragile? Is it lots of pieces on the floor? Or I'm, re I'm regretting not drinking something stronger for this conversation. <laughs> I should have, uh, you know, I do a whiskey podcast. I should have had whiskey for it. We're going to talk mm -hmm. about all this stuff. No, and, and to be to be frank, I'm, I'm joking. I wrote this piece largely as my own working out of frustration with hearing United Methodist colleagues, both to my left and to my right, just in sort of a constant tizzy about denominational stuff. Mm -hmm. um, so part of why I wrote this is because I, I'm tired of listening to everyone's crap. <laughs> And, and I, I kind of want to say, like, we need to really have some hope and have some historical perspective in particular. So where I see this playing out right now is if you look at the history of, let's say, the Methodist movement in America, um, there's been a long series of both breakaways in unions, right? So the United Methodist Church was formed in 68 out of the EUB and the Methodist Church um, the EUB was a union church. The Methodist church was a union church, bringing together the North and South and the Methodist Protestants. Um, but there's been all, all sorts of splits, often for good reasons, for disagreements. Um, I heard a, a scholar recently say, we, we have generally split over disagreements over holiness. And that seems to be the case in, in most instances. The Methodist Protestant split might be an exception to that because that was more about polity than about a particular ethical or, or holiness issue. Um, we tended to, you know, disagreements over what constitute, we're, we're a holiness tradition, right? Going back to John and Charles Wesley. So it makes sense that most of our divisions would be over some sort of holiness question. And, and where I'm frustrated is, I mean, the elephant in the room right now is that the global Methodist church, the, the new evangelical denomination was launched on May 1st. Um, I have friends who are already in the GMC. I have friends that are in the process of turning in their credentials. I have friends in the process of taking votes at their church. So I don't have personal animosity towards the GMC. It's not the direction I'm going. It's not a fit for me for a variety of reasons. Um, but I don't have ill will towards folks that are going that direction. Um, and if you, if you look in the history of the church, you know, just, just Methodism, there have been splits over all kinds of stuff. Um, you know, I, it's, it's, again, Richard Allen walking out of the church in Philadelphia because uh, they were, they were told that they, they couldn't receive communion where the white people were like that, that seems to be a great reason to leave a church and start a new denomination. Mm -hmm. Right. So um, Salvation Army, Nazarenes, groups leaving over slavery, those to me, you know, how do you argue with those reasons? Clearly, in the midst, clearly God wants the church to be one, uh, but also clearly like every institution, the church is shot through with sin and ego. And we're not gonna get that together this side of the kingdom, I don't think. Um, so we're stuck with some form of Protestantism. And I think to whatever extent we're comfortable being Protestant, um, 
we have to trust that in the midst of our divisions and dividing, God is still at work. And I thought the the argument about the church being anti-fragile was a great uh, sort of a, a great theory to make that case with. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. So, you know, in, as you've talked about the, the current splits um, between the UMC and the Global Methodist Church, how do you see that kind of splitting, strengthening both bodies? And, and I think this is where we have the, the third um, concept that you bring up, which is mitosis, which mm-hmm. remembering from my days in science class in high school, obviously that's, you know, talking about splitting apart and, and, and what that is all about. Um, but how does that kind of going in, in their separate ways actually make them stronger? Yeah, and, and I, I don't think it, it, it is inevitable. Mm-hmm. I think it's a possibility. I think it's a possibility that both the continuing United Methodist Church and the Global Methodist Church um, can, can grow and be stronger organizations because it's obviously the, the GMC is new. But I think the possibility is there for, for both organizations to be fruitful um, in, the, in the future. Um, you know, historically, a lot of these breakaway Methodist groups, like the Methodist Protestants, I keep going back to that because this church I'm serving now started off as a Methodist Protestant church. A lot of these breakaway Wesleyan denominations historically have have done and are doing well. I mean, broadly speaking, you know, groups like the Wesleyans and Nazarenes are still around. Salvation Army, obviously, you got one, you know, in your town, I'm sure. Um, they're, they're still around. God's still bearing fruit. The AME, AME Zion, are still around. Um, at the same time, I think Taleb uses, you know, the, the language of sort of productive stress, right? That um, institutions need those shocks to their system to sort of wake them up in a way. And, and so it could be that, it could be in a continuing UMC that um, having this wake up call, um, having to have these conversations about what it means to be a Methodist is productive. It, it could be as simple as, um, having, you know, a large contingent of more conservative folks leave uh, just allows us to focus on other stuff down the road, you know, and and not to say that that's the conservatives fault, but like, at a certain point, someone's got to (laughs) go so that we can be productive um, and and have some sort of common vision for the church, because right now it's it's kind of impossible. Uh, I, I think that split happening creates a possibility for a common vision for the UMC moving forward that doesn't exist now. Whether we'll take up that challenge, whether our leaders pursue that, I don't know. I think it's I think it's possible. Um, you could play devil's advocate and say that the ELCA, the PCUSA, <laughs> et cetera, et cetera, have not done great after their conservative splits. Um, but that doesn't, that's not, you know, we, we're a different church than those in a lot of ways, um, but that doesn't mean that it couldn't be so with us. Um, but I think on the whole, this concept that complex systems need stress and challenge to grow, I think is also true for, for us. And I think the danger for us is so much of the emphasis, like, like in a local church, like any institution, any organization, when the emphasis becomes on survival, that's when you really start struggling, right? If you're not if you're not trying to fulfill your mission, you're just trying to survive. And I think that'll be the challenge moving forward for the continuing UMC as resources and people shrink. But if we see it as an opportunity, like, okay, we've been fighting over this for 50 years. Now let's try to move forward in mission and ministry, figure out who we are. Let's let's go after it. It could happen. It'd be great if, if it did, but who knows? Why, why do you think that that hasn't, or at least it appears to not have happened in other bodies where there have been splits? That's a good question. I mean, I don't want to be overly uh, negative about bodies of which I'm not a part, but I mean, you and, you, and I, you and I have had conversations about sort of the main line 
Mm-hmm. Um, I think on a broad level, mainline Christianity seems to be heavily invested at being a chaplain to the culture. Mm. I think if all you're offering people is the water they're swimming in, I I don't know that you have much to, to make people give of their time and resources and energy. I don't know if all you're offering, you know, the, the old joke is the Anglican church was the Tory party at prayer, right? And the main line is largely, in a lot of instances, the DNC at prayer. Um, nothing wrong with being a Democrat and a Christian. Please don't, don't at me. <laughs> I'm not saying <laughs> that. What I'm saying is when your entire program is just clearly aligned with a certain ideology, contemporary ideology, you're not offering anyone something to give themselves to. Um, so I, for me, I would think that a, any, any mainline renewal would, would have to be a renewal both of doctrine and vision. Mm-hmm. I think if you get fuzzy on who God is, it becomes very difficult to have a compelling reason to come to church. How would you... Um... I mean, I guess you've kind of done it a little bit, but unpack a little bit more of what it means to be a chaplain to the culture. The example of Methodist, for instance, um, I think there was a book by this title or something close to it um, from from the side street to the main street Mm -hmm. that in the course of the 19th century and the 20th century in particular, you know, Methodism went from being a radical frontier faith um, with um, high buy-in, uh, high engagement, um, a high bar for staying in, both for clergy and for laity. The historians I've read, and I think they're correct, I have reason to believe they're correct, argue that as Methodism gained in numbers, and gained cultural prestige that a lot of what made Methodists successful went away. Mm-hmm. A lot of the, the particularities of the tradition, a lot of the, the church discipline in terms of uh, class meetings, band meetings, the emphasis on holiness, a lot of that particularity went away over time. Scott Kisker um, has a book called Mainliner Methodist that, that gets at this a lot. Um, so I think that's a lot of it. So when the goal becomes seeking respect from the culture, right? If you are, if you if you if your goal is to be the church that your local politicians and the bankers and the whatever college professors can go to, that's all good and well. But if if in doing that you're you're losing some vitality, there, there's a cost over time. Um, and I think largely the, the main line um, has become this, you know, respectable, respectable, but toothless institutions. Hmm. That's what I, that's what I mean by that. Um, not much to say. And you definitely in Methodism, if you look at statements that come out of our various organizations, we have organizations that do great things, but the statements themselves are often not anything you could not get from another mainline body on the same thing. It's it's very theology and doctrine light. It's very ideologically heavy. Yeah. So let's say in a kind of recent run-up, because I, I kind of maybe noticed this a bit, or or at least I kind of expected it um, with the recent ruling of overturning um, Roe. Um, It seemed like a lot of the statements that came out of mainline denominations weren't shocking. I mean, there really wasn't anything, and maybe shocking is the wrong word, but they didn't say anything that you didn't expect them not to say, I mean, that they pretty much all said the same thing. 
Yeah. Um, which seems like that would be an example of the chaplain to culture. Yeah, I think that's a good example. And again, and you could, they all pretty much sound the same. Um, that happened with with the UMC for sure. The It's a little bit unclear if it was just the head of a council of bishops or the whole council of bishops put out a statement. But what was interesting that they did was they quoted our social principles. And, and like a lot of things, our social principles try to say two things at once. <laughs> our social principles try to both sort of you know, nod to a pro-choice position and nod to a pro-life position. But the, the statement that came out um, sort of quoted it in a non-ambiguous way, if that makes sense. They sort of, they took a document that really tries to honor both positions and mm -hmm. maybe a good way because United you know, Methodists are certainly divided on this question. Um, but the statement, but you wouldn't know that the way it was worded in the statement from the Council of Bishops. It was very much uh, one one sided. Um, yeah, and I think it, for me it's interesting because I guess you know if I have to choose how or, or how I would describe myself when it comes to abortion would be somewhat pro choice, but I also expect to hear some things that talk about the importance of um, life or the importance of the fetus. That it's that I feel like as a Christian. You know, my stand would go beyond just kind of the the common pro-choice stance. That there is probably even going to be some pro-life parts of it in there, um, just because that's you know I feel like the church in some ways is supposed to be challenging, and and I always kind of say that it's always kind of an uncomfortable position for me. But that's how it should be, I think, as a Christian. And you know, likewise for those who are pro-life, it's not. It seems to me if it's so comfortable, or that you agree with it and it doesn't bother you, it seems like then it doesn't have much power to do anything or change lives or anything. Yeah, yeah. I you know, I would hope that the church can speak in something more interesting than the bumper stickers that divide us. Mm -hmm. the hashtags we have on social media, the obvious camps. I've not seen many people do that well. Um, I saw a, a really good statement. Are you familiar with Rich Viotis? I may be mispronouncing that, but the um, I think he followed Pete Scazzaro. That's Pete Scazzaro's church, I think. And I'm a big Scazzaro fan. I, I read the the sort of congregational letter that he put out for, for their congregation in New York. Um and I thought it was it was very very strong, saying this is this is who we are. We have people among us um, that are grieving, some who are celebrating. You know, our our job is is to love one another in the midst of this kind of a kind of a thing. And um, it's it's one of those where, like a lot of other debates in the church, it's it's hard to hear Christians debate in anything but the obvious predetermined ways mm -hmm. that's not, not fruitful. Um, and even I, I was surprised at the number of pro-life folks who were kind of spiking the football on social oh, media. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's a bad look. It's a real, real bad look, you know, uh, both yeah, like strategically I, and Ethic, I don't know, it's just bad, um, really, really bad. Yeah, I mean, I've seen that even among people that I know, and I was kind of like, really? That's not, Yeah. you know, I, I, I get it that there are people that that's where they are, and I want to respect that. I, I also think that's not, that's definitely not Christ-like. Yeah. Um, and it, there are also just a lot of other issues to be thinking about. And I think, you know, I do also try to listen to pro-life voices. And I think a lot of them are also, I mean, I think, what was it? Uh, I, I like to read David French's, well, I like to read a lot of stuff from David French, but he, he writes his Sunday 
um, column. And mm-hmm. I think his most recent one was that, you know, Roe has fallen, but the right's not ready. Um, that there is kind of this, the compassion part of that is not there. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think that's, that that's hard to hear. And I think on both sides, there is kind of a, you know, the cheering and all, or either cheering or the sneering that I don't think helps anyone grow. Yeah, because there was also a whole lot of um, sort of condemning all Christians for uh, for it as, as well. And you know, I, I said something like this on social media, but I'm I'm married to a physician mm-hmm. who does prenatal care, and there's still, there's a lot of legitimate concern in the medical community that physicians will not be able to properly care for their patients. Exactly. Yeah. I'll give you an example of that. Um, that I, I don't think is controversial. It's just a sort of a fact. An, an example that I was told about is that um, in, in let's say red states or states that have or may restrict access to abortion, um, ER physicians are having to find training on how to. Uh, how to treat and recognize uh, like the, the signs of like an, an at-home attempted abortion because they've never had to do that before. It's not been something that, that people show up with on any sort of regular basis, but it's a, it's a competency that now some physicians are concerned they don't have that they may need. Now that's a, that's a real thing. That's um. So it is com- complex. And I think there has to be ways, you know, I, I think of it as, as a pastor, um, some of the most gut-wrenching conversations I've ever had were with women dealing with the question of abortion. Um, there's so much pain. And I think to treat that lightly um, either way is, is, a, is a real disservice. Um, I think it's too, it's too personal. It's too serious to just reduce it to a hashtag or, um, you know, I, a lot of my female friends and, and colleagues are, as I'm sure yours are, are deeply disturbed and, and afraid. And, and can I get my head around that completely as a man? No, of course not. But as a pastor, I can I can honor that and and hear that and and recognize that and hopefully it moderates you know my responses and informs how I approach people and um but that I see I think that has really been an example of of how the, the main line is unable to speak outside of obvious cultural categories. A lot of it is language. I think the language is significant, and if the language sounds just like something you can hear on any progressive outlet, I think the church has failed. In the same way that if the church is speaking in some obvious way that you'd hear on Fox News or whatever, the church has failed, mm-hmm. right? I, I don't think this is a sole property of either side. Um, I would like the church to have a distinctive voice that is neither would be my preference, but it's hard to do. Yeah, but it seems like that, distinctive voice kind of getting back to the whole anti-fragile stuff is something that would help the church regardless whether it's evangelical or mainline to to become stronger um because i think the it the pull right now is well that's always been i guess is to kind of just follow culture but that seems to in some ways weaken the church at least Maybe not obviously, but I think in the long run. I think so. I think there's something to, right, the, the hard part about the mainline position is you sort of have to say, you know, we're just one of a lot of flavors of Christian, and they're all kind of the same. And if you feel comfortable here, then that's, then that's great. And I think there's research that has shown that one of the main things that makes people engaged and stick in their faith is particularity, 
particular practices, a particular story. There's a really good book called Almost Christian um, by Kenda Creasy Dean. Um, she teaches at Princeton. Are you familiar with her? Mm -hmm. um, Almost Christian is great. It's named after a John Wesley sermon, by the way. She's Methodist, but she was part of the National Survey on Youth and Religion. Um, Soul Searching was a previous book in that vein. But she, in, that, in Almost Christian, she talks about how do we form consequential faith in young people? And one of the things she says, one of the, one of the keys to it, she says, is that young people, for their faith to stick, they need a particular God story. So for instance, this is something Mormons do very well, the, the, the LDS church. Now by standards of historical Christianity, um, debatably, but I, I think most, most Orthodox Christians would say uh, LDS is doing something other than classic Christianity in the same way that the LDS folks would call us Gentiles and say that we're not really Christians either. I think that's fair. Uh, but they, they're great at having a particular God story, um, a particular practices, particular identity. Um, and I think a lot of people are yearning for something more than, there's just a lot of generic ways to be Christian. Here's ours. Um, I think the church growth movement's day has kind of come and gone. I think that sort of generic Christian identity, I don't know if it's going to cut it anymore. I think, I don't know. So that, that's, I think that would get at some of this is being able to have a particular, and maybe it just appeals to me personally because I'm historically oriented, but having a tradition that is robust enough to know its story and its practices um, and not just become generic pablum, I think is powerful. So what would an, an anti-fragile UMC look like? If we had the, you know, you're, you're saying earlier the 10,000 foot level. Yeah. An anti-fragile UMC. Well, this is, I mean, this is an example of where we failed at it, but it could have been. Um, this was, I think, 2012. There was something called the call to action. The, the church had done this massive um, survey that hired a, a major, you know, corporate uh, consultant to, to do a, a survey of sort of the mission and effectiveness of the church. And, and you know, it found all sorts of problems. And it found all sorts of need for the realignment of resources and energy and, um, and efforts. Um, and there was a big push and, and my bishop at the time was a big part of it. Adam Hamilton was a big part of it to really streamline the structure of the, of the denomination, um, refocus on the local church um, and, and really sort of try to right the ship from what had been this sort of, you know, in the 70s and 80s, as the church grew, just this massive bureaucracy. It was really an attempt to say, the main thing about our denomination is the local church. And we need to, we need to like refocus everything we do towards local church health. Um, a lot of energy went into that. And it, I think it would have, it would have been a good step um, in a lot of ways. The problem is they were, because UMC bureaucracy is just so massive and so entrenched. There were just so many camps that did not want to see any, any change like that. Cause it would have been, you know, a lot of jobs lost, a lot of programs lost, a lot of everything. And it was voted down um, a lot of, and that was probably the last major attempt at any sort of missional realignment. Um, Mostly, other than that, all we've done is fight about sexuality. Um, I think that would have been an example of a church sort of claiming like, hey, there's a problem here and we can steer into it or we can avoid it. And that was an attempt to steer into the problem and say, hey, we're in rapid decline. We did this study. We know things are bad. Here's an opportunity to do something different, right? Product Here's productive stress. Uh, which way are we going to go with it? And we were too dysfunctional to uh, take that opportunity. 
so maybe there's a chance for a new something like that uh, after, you know, a, a large number of churches and people leave. I don't know. But that was an example uh, of what could have been, uh, you could say, an anti-fragile or a positive, like, immune system response, right? That, But that was, hey, we're in trouble. What are we going to do about it? They had a plan. There just wasn't enough trust in the system to get it passed. Um, one of the things they wanted to do, for instance, was this was kind of simple, but they wanted to make one of the proposals that was part of his massive proposal overhaul of our system. That part of it was to have the chair of the council of bishops be um, a solo position. In other words, um, right now, and historically, the chair of our council of bishops serves an annual conference and is the chair of the council of bishops, which is an impossible task, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. um, you know, you're the manager of a McDonald's, but also you're in charge of the corporate headquarters regionally, right? Or nationally, that makes no sense. Um, and one of the few things and all that wrangling that both conservatives and progressives did not want was a central Episcopal authority. <laughs> so that one, that one did, that Ooh. one was very unpopular because nobody wanted um, a centralized authority, um, like a, like an archbishop, for instance, which I was all in favor of. I thought it made perfect sense, but uh, that's me. Hmm. So, where do you think, looking at this with? I guess realistic eyes. Obviously, in a few years, with the with things that are going on right now with the global Methodist Church, there will be splits. Um, churches will be leaving from annual conferences. Um, though it seems like that's also going to be a bit of a problem, just because of I believe you have a well did have a protocol or at least something you were hoping that would make it easier for churches to leave. Um, what happens? I mean, what happens to both bodies? Do they, do they go through this kind of stress and become stronger or do they seek comfort um, in the familiar and just kind of, you know, keep with the status quo? It's a good question. I mean, what I'm afraid of happening is what happened in the Episcopal Church, right? With just tens of millions of dollars going to attorneys, in most cases to keep empty buildings. Um, and I still know Episcopalians that are that are bitter about ACNA more so than they are concerned about the decline of their own institution. Um, that's been one of my frustrations is I feel like I have a lot of colleagues who are really mad about the GMC forming, but seem not to be bothered by the decline of the UMC. Um, Why is that? Because I've seen that, it, I've seen that in other bodies too. I, I worked for a long time with, at, um, in the PCUSA. There was, uh, especially in the, the latest thing over um, gay clergy, there were lots of people that were upset about the evangelical uh, covenant order of Presbyterians that was the split off than they were that, you know, every year they would come out with these things about the PCO, the Presbyterians declining and no one seemed to be interested in that. Yeah, yeah. And I say that as someone who is gay and I think it was totally approving of that, right. you know, that choice. Yeah. Yeah, I I fear it'll be more of the same. And again, I, I what I'm concerned about is there'll be so much of an emphasis on keeping resources flowing, on circling the wagons, protecting what's already there. I'm not sure the energy or the, the vision is there for some sort of something like what they tried to do in 2012, some kind of realignment. Maybe some of that, again, we're talking about being chaplains to the culture. Um, some of that may come from uh, perhaps unconscious sense that the goal of the church is not to make disciples, but the goal of the church is to 
is to transform society in some way. And so maybe our churches are declining, but if we're showing that we're doing um, all of these good things, then that doesn't matter. That may be part of it. I, I don't know. Um, there's certainly a lot of momentum among conservative Methodists to, to see something new being born. There's, you know, there, there's always some excitement about something new. ACNA seems to be doing pretty well from what I understand, although they, they have their own issues to be sure. Um, it doesn't seem to be the case that like the Episcopal church has thrived, you know, <laughs> in the absence of, of ACNA. And, and maybe that's, you know, what the, what's odd. I don't, like we, we, we know from the PCUSA and the Episcopal church and all that, that once this question is settled, it doesn't automatically make your church healthy, right? No, no, no. no. You, don't, you don't just, you, you don't, you know, you start approving gay marriage and all of a sudden people start flooding back into the church. But it, but I, I still have colleagues that sort of talk that way. Like, uh, until we do this, we're never going to have young people. No one's going to take us seriously. And I'm like, do you, we, there's a bunch of churches in town that are full of all full of straight old white people that are declining that have the exact same belief on paper that you're saying is going to bring in the young ones. I, I don't, it's gotta be more at, at, a, at a certain point again, is Jesus Lord? If Jesus is Lord, then he's worthy of my life. And at a certain point, the church has to be about discipleship. If it's not in some personal way about Jesus, I don't know where the energy is for people to spend half their weekend with strangers worshiping and listening to sermons. I, because everything, you know, everything else that the church does, something else in society can do it better. We can do fellowship, but Rotary Club exists. We can do service, um, but all sorts of nonprofits exist that do it better. You know, the only thing that we offer that is unique that no one else can offer is Jesus. And if I don't think if we're doing that, if we're not focused on doing that, doing it better, doing it in a holistic and winsome um, and inviting and gracious way, then there's there's no amount of there's no right policy, there's no right mission statement there that's going to work. It's at a certain point it has to be about about Jesus. That's my I mean, where where are you at? I, I I wanted to ask you how do you see some of this playing out with the disciples because I don't know much about your your tribe in that sense. But I mean, is generic mainline stuff that I'm describing described? Oh God, yes. Well? Yeah, it is. Oh God, yes. Oh God, yes, even more so. <laughs> um, you know, I think that, I mean, we had our own issues concerning um, gay rights and gay issues and all that. Um, and it's always interesting that people do talk about that, that this will bring in people. And it's like, no, no, no. I mean, I, you know, and our church is open and affirming. I think that that's a good thing to have. I just don't think that's going to bring people in. What brings people in is about inviting them, um, talking about your faith, uh, helping them so that they can see your faith in action you know, putting a sign out just to say, we like, we like the gays isn't going to draw someone, um, you know, that might've, you know, it, it's a kind of a 60s style way that that's, you know, because the culture is, is, you know, nominally Christian and someone will just happen to do that. Um, but, you know, we just kind of put a dash of 21st century, you know, inclusion in it. And, and I don't think that that works. And I think, there is a kind of belief, you know, if we can help to transform the culture, um, you know, support things in, in, with poverty, you know, the right programs for poverty reduction and all that. And I'm not saying any of that is not important. Right. Um, that's part of the heritage also of mainline um, Christianity or mainline Protestantism. But it seems like we've forgotten the main thing. And you know, we've forgotten what it means to to be the, a disciple uh, of a follower of Jesus, and, and and to talk about you know, does the gospel make a difference in our lives? Yeah. Um, 
Uh, it, I actually earlier today was talking to um, um, Jeff Mitchell, who we both know, a disciple oh, yeah. pastor in, in um, Memphis. And that's kind of what we were talking about that. And he was stressing is that if, you know, people, what people need or want is to know, does this make any difference in people's lives? Um, because as you said, it's, you know, there are lots of other things you can do on a Sunday morning. Um, I do not need to get up on a, a well, 7 a.m. on Sunday morning, and in my case, and drive 20 miles um, to meet with some other people. I could do that in my nearby. Yeah. Um, so why do we do it? And, and I think sometimes as, in my denomination, we haven't done a good job of really stressing that. And in fact, I think even more so, we have become, really become uh, chaplains to the culture, um, you know, making sure we have, do all the right, say all the right things, say all the right words, but we don't really stress, you know, the, the center of, the, of our faith and why we're doing it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the, 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 the main line, I think, at its, at its essence is, is like the social gospel, but without the gospel, right? It's like- exactly. We've for, we've forgotten that all the all the good that we do. The point of it is to point people to God and to honor God. It's not that we're going to bring in the kingdom by our own efforts, right? It's it's that we are participating in what God is already up to, and we get to be a sign, maybe a foretaste, and a, have a you know be a um, a little bit of leaven, you know, in this this great big thing that that God is doing if it's not about God and it's not ultimately something supernatural, I don't know that there's any impetus really for people to invest their lives in the church. But if God is real and if God is active and if God is invested in your personal life, if God heals people and sets people free and um, gives them meaning and purpose, then, then man, that's, that's worth a lot. That's worth getting out of bed for it. Um, but if God is just there to approve every choice and thought I have and rubber stamp everything I already think, I don't know. That doesn't sound compelling to me. Well, then it's kind of, what is it? Who is it? Feuerbach? Um, that's just projection. Yeah. Yeah, which, you know, to which, which is, you know, why someone like a Karl Barth says, um, God, saying God is not simply saying man in a loud voice, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, God yeah. is not just a, a projection in, in that sense. And, and you know, I, I think our, the doctrines of the church, like, like the Trinity, speak beautifully to our, our deepest human needs, right? The, the Trinity is, a, is an eternal relationship, of, of wholeness and beauty and, and self-giving. And don't we all want to see that in our lives? The, you know, the, the doctrine of the incarnation is that God became one of us. God, you know, made us capable of divinity by becoming human. Like that's, it's amazing. That's beautiful. That's, there's, there's meat there. And if we reduce that as I, as I fear the main line does to God wants you to be nice and help people, Again, there's a lot of organizations that can do that better than the church can. Mm-hmm. Um, but if if Jesus is risen, if if God is, you know, um, who raised Jesus from the dead, having first raised Israel out of Egypt, that's a, that's a God I want to give my life to. That's a, a God worthy of, you know, my tithe and my time and my deepest efforts. Um, and, you know, ultimately, I'm curious where, where you are, but I sometimes dabble still and think in these sort of high level conversations, I will say personally, I have found a lot of peace in really just trying to focus on the local church and worry less about denominational stuff because, um, the, those, the, these systems are, large old battleships 
And if they turn, they turn slowly. And I don't think I'm the one holding the wheel. <laughs> yeah, well, and, and I think, you know, the change may not come from there. It may actually come from the local church. Yeah. You know, and I guess I get that from our tradition because it's, it's a congregational um, tradition is that it, that's probably where it's going to have to come. Um, which, you know, obviously it makes me think a lot about what, what is my church all about, my local congregation. And, you know, we're at a unique point that we are in the process of moving and in the process really of finding a new place and finding about who we are. Um, and so, you know, I think that's kind of where the change is going to happen. Um, you know, if you want to talk about stressors that a congregation is dealing with, we are dealing with a lot of, a lot of antibodies are coming at it, um, mm. are, are hitting us. So, um, but I think that can, can help us and maybe in turn help the larger church. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think the same. I, I've, I've heard the organizational gurus say that innovation always comes from the margins, not the center, right? Mm -hmm. Kind of what you're, what you're naming. And that's, I, I can't control anything that happens above my pay grade. Um, but in my local church, which I, however frustrated I am with the denomination, what, what I tell folks, you know, something I came up with a while ago is um, I don't love you know, I don't love my neighborhood. I don't love, I don't love my home because of who's in Congress. I love my home because of who my neighbors are and what my neighborhood is. Mm -hmm. um, I can't control what happens um, at a general conference or with bishops or whatever. Um, but my local church is where it's at. My local church is where I have a voice. My local church is where um, I can get involved and where I can get, touch people for God. And, and I've, I found a lot of peace myself and really trying as much as possible not to worry about stuff that's above my pay grade. In, in large part, just because, you know, the, maybe the other side of the anti-fragility argument in some ways is sort of the Friedman systems theory idea that systems do like to revert to homeostasis, right? Left, kind of left to their own devices that will revert to homeostasis, or maybe G Jesus might say the um, the wide path is the easy one that we're going to want to take. Um, but the, the levers that I can pull to do something different are all in the local church. They're not above me. Um, and that's, you know, there's, there's beauty and terror in that too, uh, I guess. Um, but yeah, same thing. Like the local church is you know, my local church, we're in a, a downtown setting in a downtown that's growing, that brings challenges too. Um, but there's a real opportunity and that, that's very exciting. Um, but there's no point of being distracted by, you know, in the same way, right? I, I can't control what Congress does. I still love my neighbors and my neighborhood. We can't control what UMC stuff does or does not happen, but we can still you know, be the best uh, little corner of the UMC that we can be for who we are. And that's enough. Mm -hmm. well, the thought that I wanted to share is that I've always had an appreciation since you've been talking about Wesleyan movements is the Salvation Army. Mm -hmm. um, and the reason I have, even though they're far more conservative than I am, they have different views, especially on sexuality, um, is because I really too feel they take what it means to be a disciple of Jesus seriously because they go out to meet people that they may not want to meet that I probably would not want to meet yeah. um, and kind of the lowest edges of society, but yet they do and they are there and they reach out to them. Um, and there's something about that that I appreciate that sometimes um, in the modern church, we're not good at because I think we want 
and I will admit this myself, we want to be comfortable. We do not want to be stretched. Yeah. Um, and they're an example of what it means to, I think, be to show some sense of anti-fragility um, as, a, as a follower of Jesus. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think if you look at how the church functions in a lot of parts of the world where they're not comfortable, they don't have, you know, a lot of support resources, um, that's sort of how the church has to be. You, you had David Watson on mm-hmm. your podcast recently. You know, David is a, is a good friend and a mentor of mine. I, I did my doctor ministry under under David and, and Justice Hunter. And um, David's talked about visiting a slum in Nairobi. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I've met the pastor that's at this church, that's planted this church in the slum. And, you know, this is someone who not only has planted this church that's doing a school for kids and caring for these, you know, some of the poorest kids on the continent. Um, this pastor also has like adopted kids into his home, even though he doesn't have much room. And it's, it's really powerful. And there, there's something about that. Um, yeah. There's something about that that makes, it, it's a credit to the gospel, right? When people see that it's hard to say what you're doing is garbage right it's hard to it's hard to argue there's not something real there mm-hmm. um and yeah I, I think we've lost this again the main line because so much of it is about respectability and being the, the church on main street that the bankers can go to there's something lost in that and i say that as someone serving a downtown church with a um you know a lot of um professionals in it there's a lot of great things about that but if we lose the capacity to welcome people who are broken and hurting and poor, then we're clearly doing something wrong, um, anti-gospel. So my, my folks are really good at welcoming anyone that, that shows up, thankfully. But in a lot of churches, it's a different story. Mm-hmm. I agree, yeah. Well, Drew, thank you for this conversation. It is, again, as, as always, it's been an enlightening conversation. Um, and definitely we'll look forward to having you again to talk about another, probably another article that you've written that <laughs> I find really fascinating. <laughs> uh, we'll see what, what I've got in the, uh, in the hopper. I've got a couple, I've got a chapter coming out sometime in the next year on, on Batman and the Sabbath. Um, so maybe sometime we can talk some pop culture stuff. Cause I'm doing a lot of, uh, I'm going to teach a class this fall at a local college on pop culture and theology. Mm-hmm. So maybe we can talk some, uh, I know we're, we're both into, you know, movies and stuff like that. So we could talk some pop culture and theology, but um, always a pleasure to talk with you, Dennis. I, I really appreciate, um, you know, I think both of us have somewhat of a contrarian streak in us. And um, it's, it's you know, we bonded over that in some ways, but it's just, it's nice. I, I just enjoy talking to people that I don't know exactly what they're going to say before they open their mouth. You know, that's always refreshing. Um, people that have interesting thoughts. So, especially among clergy, because clergy, I don't know, aren't always that interesting. Sorry, clergy. <laughs> no, no, I, I agree with you. It's like, <laughs> clergy shouldn't be predictable, but yet there are so many that are. Yeah, Jesus wasn't predictable. Jesus wasn't, you know, he didn't fit in with the, the dominant schools of his time. He wasn't in with any of them all the way, but they were all drawn to him. And um, yeah, no, I appreciate the chance to talk about the article. Glad you found it interesting and always a pleasure to talk to you. And uh, thanks to those who've watched this. All right. Well, we'll talk again. So take care. You too. this episode, um, I want to remind you about um, considering to leave a donation to support Church in Maine. If you like what you hear and you would like to keep hearing great content like this, I would hope that you would consider making a donation of any amount that you can. Um, When you do that, it it does help um, defray some of the costs that it takes to uh, put a podcast like this online. 
So you can make a donation by using the link that's in the, the description, or you can go to our brand new website for the podcast, which is churchandmain.org. And when you're on the, pie, on the website, just look for the button that says donate. That is it for this episode of Church in Maine. I'm Dennis Sanders, your host. Thank you so much for listening. Take care, Godspeed, and we will see you very soon.